Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is Chris Curtis. Chris has served as a Director and Portfolio Manager of Elliston Capital since 2005 and has over 36 years experience. Before Elliston, he co-founded the Melbourne-based investment management firm Portfolio Partners in 1994, where he held positions including Director and Senior Investment Manager and was formerly the Head of Equities until January 2003. Chris was also inducted into the Australian Fund Managers Foundation Hall of Fame in 2018. In today's episode, we discuss the parallels between today and the dot-com bust, the stocks and sectors carrying the Australian market, and we also touch on Chris's distaste for Aussie banks. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Chris, thanks for coming on The Rules of Investing. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Thank you. How would you score markets here and overseas? Well, for the record, calendar year to date, Australia has been the best performing uh, developed market in terms of performance. Uh, And that's a, a, a function of structural mix and composition of the ASX 200, where it's very skewed to a couple of big resource stocks, BHP, Rio, Fortescue, your, your big four retail banks, your, your CSLs, and you know five or six other names that, that have actually held up pretty well. Um, and and the, the, the disparity uh, between the best performing stocks and, and, and the worst performing stocks calendar year to date is, is enormous. Uh, it, I won't go into the worst performing stocks. I think your, your listeners probably know what, what most of them are and they probably own a few of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I wish they didn't. <laughs> to group it, it would be those long duration names which have been uh, hit hardest. Um, do you see them getting back to the, the the positions they were in pre-COVID or those those sky-high multiples no, are, no. are over? We endured a period for many years of, of free money where interest rates went to zero. Uh, you, 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 your cost of debt was next to nothing. Your cost of equity, no one threw in an equity risk premium. And I, I presume you're referring to the techier names. Um, let's put aside the the utilities and, and infrastructure stocks for a minute. But uh, you know, we've we've seen a lot of the tech stocks fall you know, 30, 40, 50, 70, 80, 90 percent in, in many cases. And, and and that's a function of interest rates going from zero to a, a more normalized level. And also a, a function of investors pushing out the 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 break-even EBITDA level into the future, whereas previously they may have given them the benefit of the doubt, and a lot of these sort of tech stocks were trading on sort of 15 times price to revenue. That was all very well when interest rates were zero, but suddenly we're in a, a global tightening cycle, interest rates are are obviously going north and will continue to go north. And you know, U- U.S. Treasuries, the ten years are now sitting at you know three point three ish as as we speak. The curve's inverted. Uh, short rates are higher than 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 your long ten year rates. Uh, that will have an impact on valuations and and investors' perception of how we should value these stocks. And 
a lot of them have halved, um, even the good ones, but just because they've halved, it doesn't mean they're necessarily cheap. Uh, just because something's gone from 15 times price to revenue back to seven, eight, nine, ten, it, 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 you know me, I'm, I'm a bricks and mortar sort of old school guy. So, so some of these valuations are still mind snapping and cut against my cloth. Cut a, they cut against my 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 valuation discipline DNA cloth, if you like. <laughs> if that makes sense, it does. Um, what parallels can we uh, draw to the the dot com bust today? These these long duration techie names, they've they've had access to such cheap cheap money yeah. to just hoover up market share, um, and really something similar happened, you know, back around two thousand when all of a sudden there wasn't enough money to acquire these new cu- customers and there was the realisation that, um, you know, these new customers might not have been worth what was previously thought. Would you say it's .com okay. 2.0? Okay. Um, well, I I have the benefit that I lived through the, the .com boom and bust and for the record I've been involved in financial markets for nearly four decades Um uh, I know you find that hard to believe, but <laughs> I'm still here and I'm, I'm one of the great survivors. So uh, back in sort of 1999, leading up to the dot-com uh, bust, if you like, um, there, there were there were names that were also trading on stratospheric uh, eye-watering valuations, you know, the Davnets, the Solution Sixes, uh, the 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 Melbourne ITs, the sausage softwares. Uh, a lot of your viewers may be younger and probably weren't even born then, but uh, the, these companies were market darlings, and unfortunately, they all uh, they all just disappeared in a puff of smoke. And the the parallels I can draw today are that there will be again the solution sixes and uh, sausage softwares but uh, th- they're incognito now they're, they're still in disguise and uh, there'll be the good tech companies and, and online companies that will continue to to, to do well and, and there'll be those that I think just uh, just disappear into the ether and and in, back into cyberspace where they came from uh, you know what's an example of a good uh, software dot uh, uh, tech company? I, uh, I don't own it for the record, full disclosure. But but zero would be one of the the the, the better performing uh, in in a business sense software companies. Uh, I'm, I'm sure your listeners would be familiar with zero. But just because it's halved, it it doesn't mean it's cheap. Still very expensive. But you know to put in perspective, zero would still be on. You know, consensus numbers of you know, a P of three hundred EVD, but DA will be fifty times or thereabouts. And uh, yeah, it's a great software package. And if if every US citizen uh, bought their software, uh, the total total addressable market will be X trillion billion zillion. Uh, I've heard all that before. Um, I'm not a believer. Uh, but that's that's a good business. It's well run, good business model. The 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 difficulty for for sort of more value oriented investors like myself 
uh, probably more garpier than deep value, but the difficulty is getting your heads around the valuation. And like I said, uh, there's the company will probably make, I don't know, 300 million EBITDA this year or whatever the number's going to be, but there's not a lot of bottom line profit and investors are paying a lot up front for that revenue growth and and you know hopefully they get to you know a P&L level a lot earlier than than people expect time will tell then you've got uh, some of the you know ritzier more expensive uh, uh, profitless tech companies an example of that would be would be Zip, uh, not one of my favourites. Uh, never, never going to find it in my portfolio. Doesn't mean I haven't made mistakes along the journey in other stocks, but that's another story. Uh, we, we've all caught the occasional falling knife here and there. We'll, we'll get to that later. But, but oh, please don't spare me. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, Zip's a company that it, it's a payments company. Uh, I, I, I look at. The, the EBITDA losses, it's, it's accumulating. Uh, I, again, I, j- just because it's fallen 70, 80%, it, it doesn't mean it's necessarily cheap. So I think a lot of these sort of profitless growth companies will, will end up like sausage software, just disappear over time. So you make a, a great point about these companies that have been v- – valued based on revenue as opposed to profit. The modus operandi has just been go for market share, go for market share. At what point do they do you need to pay the piper and turn a profit? Now. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Well, that's why a lot of these stocks have halved and halved again and and the ones that have only halved may well halve again. Uh, I, I think the market is in a rising interest rate environment, really focused on the companies that are generating uh, free cash flow that, that that pay a sustainable dividend yield and, and hopefully a growing dividend yield over time, that are trading on you know sensible PEs and and sensible EV to EBITDA valuation metrics and you know gone are the days of the eyeballs and the total addressable market and the mumbo jumbo. It's now coming down to free cash flow, and and what does this business actually do? And 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 more importantly, how is the board and management allocating capital? Uh, you know, it's it's something get, that gets lost on a lot of investors. You know, we, 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 you know, you asked you asked earlier about the banks, but uh, there's been so much capital misallocation in in a lot of segments of the Australian market. It's it just beggars belief. But we can come to that later if you like, unless you want me to talk about it now. Your, <laughs> no, your call. We will we will come back to it. Um, okay, so what kind of sectors and stocks um, fit that bill? Well. I'm a contrarian by nature, and I like to be selectively contrarian, not just for the sake of being contrarian. And I, I love a lot of the bombed out cyclicals at the moment. Um, I, I think some of the building material names have, have been absolutely smashed. So companies like CSR, five times EV to EBITDA, doing a share buyback, 100 million buyback announced, 7% sustainable yield, you know, low PE, 
everyone would be familiar with CSR, you know, Chip Rock and all the rest of it. So people saying, oh, golly, uh, there's a housing slowdown uh, uh, in full bloom. Well, yeah, there is, but these stocks are down 30, 40, 50%. It's not just the CSRs, it'll be the same with Boral, and a lot of it's been weather related, but you know, yet they give the banks the benefit of the doubt that uh, you know they've been very resilient, yet at the end of the day, they're, they're both very economic sensitive. One's priced for uh, a, a, de a desynchronized slowdown and, and, if you like, a recession. The other, the others, the other sector is not. Um, you know, RWC is another one I like globally. Reliance Worldwide, which is which is a, essentially a plumbing company behind the wall plumbing uh, and appliances. Uh, you know, the stock's gone from I don't know six dollars plus to to $3.60 or 70 or wherever it's trading today, I don't know. Uh, so ha have you been buying? We're long. Okay. Yep. W were you long prior to the sell-off in these these names? Uh, we've bought the dip. You know, we weren't buying them at $6, $6 plus or, or whatever they got to, six fifty. dollars uh, We'll leave that for the brave. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to banks. Um, you're quite bearish on banks. Why is that? Very cautious. Uh, people have forgotten banks are, are, are in, like, not only are they interest rate sensitive, but they're economic sensitive. And we're, we're, we're in an environment where clearly uh, the, the, the Reserve Bank of Australia, you're going to see continued tightening. Uh, credit growth is is slowing already. Housing's coming off the boil, um, and rates are going higher. Uh, you know, Governor Lowe has made no secret of that. He may slow the rate of increases of interest rates, but you know we've had four fifty point rate right rises in a row, and that's on top of the initial twenty five uh, basis point increase. So we're we're at you know, 2.35 now and, and going higher. Uh, when, when I look at the, 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 the lenders out there and, and the consumers and the borrowers of, 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 of consumer finance and, and housing loans, when interest rates were zero, a, 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 lot of, a lot of consumers were locking in two and three year honeymoon rates at 1.99%. Uh, maybe they've locked it in for three years, but they're, all those all those home loans and those honeymoon sweetheart deals are starting to, to roll over now. And unfortunately, it's going to be a rude awakening where as, as these loans roll over, suddenly they'll walk into the Commonwealth Bank and, and they'll be hit with a 5.5% mortgage, not not 1.99, and you know they, they've borrowed at they've borrowed 80 percent, maybe put 20 percent of equity down just when housing's just starting to come off the boil. And as I said, as I said, credit growth is slowing, but the the, the crescendo will be the the bad and doubtful debt line. And every second day, I pick up a newspaper, a, a Melbourne construction company's gone under, or a Queensland developer or construction company's gone under. Uh, and, and there's a little bit of stress starting in the system. Now that hasn't come through yet in 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 the P and L of the banks because the reporting thus far has been, you know, reasonable. But they won't see the stress for another nine months. And I, I think uh, collectively, 
as a sector, uh, the, the big four banks would have exposure to uh, c- construction uh, to the tune of about forty billion plus, and to development to the tune of maybe three hundred billion. Now, that's not all going to go pear shaped, but all it takes is uh, a, a normalised uh, historical rate to go from two percent of those exposures to four percent, and there goes the neighbourhood for the bank. So, what you'll see is the BDD line, the the, the charge for bad and doubtful debt, to start. To, to squeeze higher from a, a, a very benign level up until now where banks have actually been writing back prior provisions. And I think the stress will come through in, in the next sort of nine months. And my, my personal view is there's better places to park your money. There are better opportunities than, than the big four banks. I mean, Matt, Matt Conn, you know, Con just just recently sold five and a half million dollars of of stock PA public information. Yeah. Directors got to lodge there, you know, and that's a fair chunk of his of his shareholding. Um, he's no deal. Uh, maybe he can see what's over the over the valley better than you and I can. But uh, if he was buying five and a half million, I'd be I'd 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 be interested. But no, he's going the other way. So. I look at Combank. Most of your viewers and 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 listeners would 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 have owned Combank over the journey and still do. And great bank, but the reality is, it, it's probably one of the most expensive retail banks in the world because of their strong deposit base. You know, two point three times price to book, PE of sixteen. But the yield's only four point three percent now. It, the gone are the days when the banks are yielding seven, eight, nine percent. Combank's yield on on consensus numbers is is only down to about 4.3% for this year. I, I can do better than that with one hand tied behind my back. And it seems they've gone into rent seeker mode, um, ANZ with the Suncorp acquisition. Not a fan of that kind of M&A? Uh, look, um, what, what I find staggering with the ANZ Bank is, you know, the share number one, the share price gone nowhere for ten years, uh, or five years for that matter. Um, but uh, they've just paid four billion dollars or thereabouts for 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 SunCorp's banking operations to strengthen their their market share. They were historically a little bit weak in in Queensland, but they're only just winning back the market share uh, that they've lost over the last few years. Now. I talked earlier about capital allocation. Here is a bank that just finished a share buyback not that long ago at $27 a share, and then they go and acquire uh, Suncorp's banking operations uh, for close to $4 billion. There's always adjustments. Um, And then they issue capital at $18.10. So... Uh, you know, I'm no rocket scientist, but the, the numbers don't add up as far as I'm concerned. It's just uh, I, I could have thought of better ways to allocate your capital. Okay. What about the other half of the market then, resources? You mean looking back or looking forward? Oh, forward. Forward, Chris. Forward. Uh, look, we're in, a, we're in a position where BHP, let's, let's pick the biggest resource stock, uh, last year, it earned forty billion dollars, uh, uh, which which I think was was a record year for them. But but iron ore prices have been incredibly 
resilient. And and yeah, they've gone from sixty five to two hundred and twenty US dollars a ton and back to let's call it a hundred ish. You know, it depends what day you look at it, but I think last night it closed at around one oh four or wherever it was. Uh, now, I don't see that price as sustainable, personally, because at some point uh, the supply will catch up, and when you're digging it out of the ground at a cash cost of eighteen, nineteen, twenty US dollars a a, a ton, and you're selling it for a hundred plus. Uh, an unborn fetus can work out that your EBITDA <laughs> margins are, you know, super duper. So looking looking into the future, yeah, BHP, I'm, I'm sure, will allocate capital well, but the iron ore price, I think, over the fullness of time must, must soften from current levels. And... Uh, I'd feel more comfortable using a sort of $65 US a tonne iron ore price a couple of years out. And even then, they're still, they're still making a healthy margin, but that will mean it'd be very hard for BHP uh, unless the A collapses to 50 cents, which it's not going to do, to, to repeat that sort of 40 billion of, of EBITDA that they've just reported. In, in the last financial year that they updated the market on. I've been around for nearly four decades. Oh, oh, oh. you just got to be there at the right point in the cycle and uh, you, you don't want to be jumping on uh, the last train just before it turns midnight. Just as China's slowing down, in other words? Um, well... Uh, Ch China, there's no question about it, it ha has slowed, but you you, are, you have got uh, a lot of regions in in rolling lockdown, so they'll 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 kick up again, and and, and there will be a, a resurgence of demand uh, from from current constrained levels, and it'll all be this big infrastructure push. But what worries me is more the supply side of the equation. So what what you want to do is invest in resource stocks that are supply side constrained and and you know it's not like there's a new copper mine being found every second week another Escondida or a, a Freeport Grasberg it just doesn't happen but iron ore is the single biggest contributor of, of BHP's earnings of Rio's earnings of Fortescue's earnings uh, they, they, that's your they're the three biggest resource companies in Australia so do you do you hold any of them I own BHP okay our funds own BHP and uh, we've done very well out of it, I must say, but uh, where to from here? I think it can go higher, but I, I, I'd have to review it in, 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 in the near term and just monitor the iron ore price, copper price, uh, hard coking coal, hard coking coals. You know, people forget when you look at that $40 billion contribution, uh, coking coal went from $288 million in FY21 to $9.5 billion of EBITDA uh, in the 2022 year they just reported. Now, you know, when I started in the industry, when I had hair, uh, we'd, stick in, we'd stick in $30 for thermal coal and on a good day, $40 for hard coking coal. Suddenly hard coking coal shoots through 500, 550, touches 600 US a tonne 
and thermal coal is where it is today because uh, of supply constraints, uh, and people think that's normal. Well, it's not normal, and it's not sustainable. And you speak to anyone that's been in industry more than two weeks, they'll tell you that. So a little bit cautious on the resource side of the, uh, of, of the spectrum. Why do you prefer BHP to, to the Rios and the Fortescues? Um, well, don't get me wrong, Twiggy's done a phenomenal job creating what he's created, uh, you know, amazing job uh, from, from, from nothing, basically. But B- BHP to me is, is more diversified in the sense that it's, it's, it's iron ore, it's hard coking coal, uh, they've just divested petroleum, uh, with the BHP merger, the in-specie. And uh, uh, I just like their their current pillars and and uh, I think management are back on the right track. Uh, I think Ken McKenzie as, as chairman's done a pretty good job. I think uh, the newish CEO, well, he's not that new now, but doing a good job. And I, I, th- I think they're executing reasonably well. Um, Rio, I don't understand why they've just paid what they've paid for for the Mongolian copper asset. It's just been plagued from day one, and they're just throwing more money at it. They've, if you look at the price they've paid, it's it's like a hundred and twenty five percent premium to their first bid. They've spent billions and billions on this project for no return. I think BHP are allocating their capital a little bit better than Rio at the moment. And they've all made mistakes over the last forty years. Typically, you know, they they sell low and 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 buy high. You know, I can recall when when Rio bought Alcan Canada for you know whether it was thirty or forty billion, can't remember. It was sort of just before the GFC, only to write off thirty billion. You know, each company's made errors of judgment. BHP, you know, a lot's been written about their their misallocation under previous boards and, and management. I won't go into that, but again, I could write a book on that, but I won't save that for another time. Is diversification, you mentioned before how you like BHP because it's diversified. Is that one way to hedge against that risk in the in the commodity prices? It, 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 it's a lower risk way. Yeah, it's, 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 it's playing it safe. Okay, Chris, we'll move on to our three favorite questions, which we pose to all of our guests. What's the single biggest thing in your mind that investors are getting wrong about markets at the moment? Complacency. Um, I, I, I look at the geopolitical risks and they are very elevated at the moment. Everyone's focused on the Ukraine and Russia, but you know the, the situation in, in, in Taiwan is it needs to be monitored. Uh, you've got every central bank jacking up interest rates pretty aggressively at a time when global growth is is slowing. Uh, you've just had a US reporting season, which was better than expected, as as was ours. Um, but be under no illusion, rate rates are going up, and that that's a valuation headwind for equities. The 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 investment climate has never been as sort of muddied as as what I what it is today, in in my opinion. So, and throw in you've got look at Europe. Europe's a mess. Uh, you've got the, the the Italian elections just around the corner. Looks like the fascists are going to get in. Um, that's not good. Um, 
you've got uh, US elections coming up not that far away. Uh, see how that plays out. The Democrats have, are making a strong comeback. Again, we'll see how that plays out. And uh, the good thing, though, is I, I don't want to leave you on a, on a completely bearish note, is when I look at the domestic market, corporate Australia is in pretty good shape. And, and I talked about the banks and 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 the, the prospect of BDDs going up. Well, during the GFC last time, corporate Australia was in terrible shape, and what blew the the banks' BDD charges uh, through the roof was not uh, it wasn't mums and dads and and housing and consumer finance and and credit. It was corporate exposures that blew up your Babcock and Browns, your Eddie Groves, uh, ABC Learnings of the World. Uh, the, the, it was the corporates that, that blew the system up and suddenly the BDD charges blew out to 75 basis points from sort of a historical level of sort of 15 to 22 over a long period of time. Uh, this, this time round, corporates are in good shape. I think the consumer may come under pressure as, as housing slows. And uh, I think, so, so, you know, people who borrowed a lot of money and stretched themselves two years ago and that they, they had that honeymoon period that they thought was going to last forever, uh, well, I, I think reality is slow, slowly starting to sink in. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I'm just cautious on, on the market and that's why I think sustainable dividend yield is is going to be the the principal driver of returns over the next sort of 12 to 18 months uh, it's not going to be capital growth um, if you can protect the capital all very well and good but uh, i think sustainable dividend yield is going to be critical and you know I, I think after 40 years or 37 years in the game i've learned which companies will deliver uh, sustainable dividend yields and hopefully growing dividend yields uh, and, and and they will be companies with good, generally good balance sheets that 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 are are not uh, operationally operationally leveraged, given the downturn we're we're experiencing now, the, the the softening conditions. Do you think that pivot to income will be a twelve to eighteen month situation, or could it define the decade? As as the as capital growth define the past decade, and then income the decade. I, I before personally that? think the bull market's over. To answer your question, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I've thought that for a while. Yep. Uh, yeah, we'll have relief rallies. Uh, be under no illusion. You'll you'll get your relief rallies, and uh, but I I really think we're in for a really rough and uh, tumultuous period in financial market in all risk assets over the next few years and that's why i think uh, dividend yield is going to be so important and that's where my focus is at the moment um you're always going to buy stocks that don't have dividend i mean we've been buying news corp recently it's hardly a, a, a superb yielder but some of the parts on that thing is just so cheap it's not funny when you take out rea group which has been hit for six on the back of slaying real estate and new listings and you know they still own sixty two percent of it, but when you when you're back out there REA holding, it's you're getting the rest of the business for three times EBITDA. It's it's theft. Rupert's not going to live forever. Um, you know, the minute he goes, the stock will probably be in play. You know, big big tech, big media have come after it. Some of the parts, unborn fetus can work out the numbers. 
Okay, I told you earlier that I'd hold you to it. Could you share uh, a story of a big win or loss um, in your investing career and what did you learn from it? Um, I've had that many losses. I've I've caught so many falling swords. My my hands are like a sieve these days. So, (laughs) you know, unless you've got the next four hours, I won't bore your listeners with all the mistakes I've made and there have been a few and I've got the battle scars to prove them. But in terms of wins, I, I probably... The, the one that would spring to mind was very early in my career and I was, I was working at County NatWest Australia Investment Management at the time. This is sort of you know, over three decades ago and I was lucky enough to, to work with a brilliant uh, head of equities by the name of David Slack and you know, David was a great mentor but uh, as a young a- analyst, I was thrown probably the worst sector in the market where I couldn't cause too much damage back then. Uh, and it was called the solid fuel sector, which was coal stocks and uranium and, and uh, energy names. But one of the stocks in that sector was, was a company called Howard Smith, which was a, a diversified industrial stock. But because they owned a stake in coal and allied, it was still lumped in the solid fuels index. So I covered it naturally. But it, it, it was a security that uh, John Spelvin's back in his day, and some of your listeners may know who John Spelvins was uh, in that period. He was one of the corporate raiders, but he raided the company and, and ended up effectively controlling it. And what he started doing was using Howard Smith's balance sheet to, to buy other bits and pieces in his, uh, in his stable, you know, Tooth & Co, Adelaide Steamship. And when the market found out about this, the Howard Smith shares collapsed. They, they were a former, you know, blue chip industrial with businesses in uh, uh, heavy engineering. They owned Ganinans. They owned Blackwoods, which was industrial products distribution. Uh, they had a towage operation here. They, they, they ran the harbour here in, New, in, in a lot of ports, actually. Um, they had hardware stores. Anyway, cut a long story short, the stock got creamed. Uh, and I, I remember going to visit the management, the chairman, the CEO, the company secretary, you know, David and I did all the work on it and we we put the hoover on it and, and became substantial at, I think it was around $3 a share. Uh, and we effectively wrote off the value of their investment in, in Adsteam and Tooth and & Co and where they'd allocated or misappro- uh, misappropriated, it's a bit harsh, where they'd uh, probably misuse some of the company funds and uh, assumed that went to zero. And yet we, we we did our sum of the parts and the stock was back then yielding 10%, trading on a P of seven, uh, which was back then an b- absolute bargain. And this, the rest is history. The stock doubled, tripled. Eventually, West Farmers took it over at $13, I think it was, uh, many years later. And uh, uh, it was probably one of the, the biggest wins because we were so big in the stock. It was a huge active overweight position. And back then in the, I think it was 92 or 93, it made county's performance. Well, it was it certainly contributed a lot. And, you know, David Slack gets full credit for that. But I did all the numbers on it and uh, give credit where credit's it was perfect team, dream team. Third question, Chris, final question. Um, 
and this is a this is a hypothetical of course we do not recommend investors uh concentrate like this but if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only hold stock in one company uh what company would that be well i i I, I normally like to, to to do a Viv Richards and, and try and hit every ball out of the park um, as it's bowled to me, but given given the backdrop I've just painted, where I think one needs to be a little bit cautious uh, over the next few years, and and I don't know how the, how markets are going to look in five years' time, but I, I want to be a bit more defensive this time round. Uh, I originally would have probably picked BHP. Uh, but I think there's a lot of supply that's going to come on from West Africa, and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if iron ore is fifty bucks a ton in five years' time, and not not a hundred. So I'm not going to pick BHP. The company I'm going to pick, and don't fall off your chair, is Amcor, uh, global packaging giant, uh, trading on probably. A twenty-five to thirty percent discount to to the all industrials ex banks. Uh, you know, quality management, global leader in in flexibles and and rigids. Uh, really, really good management. Like I said, and and it gets back to sort of Ken McKenzie's day and regime where you know you talk about companies that make mistakes. Rio bought Alcan, blew the balance sheet up, and then had to sell. Alcan uh, packaging to Amcor, which they bought for four times EBITDA after synergies in the end. Um, tick Ken McKenzie, Cross Rio. Uh, and just recently, well, not recently, they, they've they acquired Bemis uh, in North America, which, which and, and, and for the record, Alcan was, was Amcor's number one competitor. So it's not often you get to buy your number one competitor at, at four times EBITDA and the regulator lets it through, which they did because so many companies were going under at the time. They were, they didn't, the regulators didn't know whether they were AFA or MAFA. They just let it through, but you know, that was, that was a good deal. Uh, Bemis, again, cements their position in, in North America. Uh, Amcor would be on a PE of sort of 14 and a half times, big discount to the market, to the industrial market, uh, compared to its packaging peers. 4% dividend versus packaging peers at 1%. ROIC, 16% versus packaging peers at half that ROIC. Uh, it, it should be on a, it should be on an, in, a, a market industrial rating, not a discount. So, uh, and it's, it's defensive. It's, it's, uh, consumer fast moving goods. It's, it's groceries. It's, it's healthcare packaging. Uh, it, it's packaging for your pets. It's defensive and resilient growth, and it's proven to do. It's it, it's proven, and what I like about it here's the here's the tailwind. Um, they've they've done a really good job managing their input costs. I mean, oil has gone through the roof, and and hence resin prices. That's just starting to roll over now, and you'll see the benefit of that over the next sort of, sort of twelve to eighteen months. And what Amcor were able to do during during that that. Spike in input prices was was passed through to their customers, uh, so they 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 manage that really successfully. So now they'll get the free kick. They'll they'll get resin prices coming off the boil, freight prices already coming off the boil, just at a time when I think uh, uh, the revenue line should be pretty resilient. So uh, I, I, I like I like boring old Amcor. Not going to blow you up. Not going to blow your listeners up. Okay, so 
Amcor aside, have you got a resources pick for me? Oh, if if you're looking for a, a sort of spicy meatball, um, I'm, I'm reasonably positive on the outlook for for gold. And the reason I say that is I, I think at, at some point uh, the Fed will slow their rate of interest rate hikes, and that there'll be a reversal in in the US dollar strength and the US dollar will come under a bit of pressure. It's, as you know, at all-time high now, 30, 30 and 20-year high against most most currencies, whether it's the yen, the euro, whatever. Um, so I'm bullish gold and the, 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 the biggest stock in our portfolio is, is Northern Star Resources where it's making probably one and a half billion of EBITDA today and that, that's going to be close to two billion pretty soon. Uh, their production profile is is ramping up. They've got Pogo sorted out in in Alaska. Uh, it's trading on four and a half times EBITDA. EBITDA. They've just announced a four hundred a three hundred million dollar buyback. Uh, I, I, I'm cautious on on the outlook for the world, and and you want to have a few gold bars under your bed, and you know Northern Star uh, meets that criteria. Awesome, Chris. Thanks for coming on Rules of Investing. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Thank you, David. That's it for today's episode. Sounds like investors are in for a tough few years, but there are still companies out there that make a compelling case for investment. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next time.